Good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you're new or visiting, uh, we want to welcome you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd it'd be cool to meet you. If you don't want to meet me, that's cool too. I remember one time, uh, every once in a while, I'll share this story, um, but I went to a church and what they did, even though it was not that small, but they would actually say, if you're new, why don't you stand up and introduce yourself? Uh, and the guy was looking at me. He knew I wasn't, you know, I, I don't know, didn't normally go there. I don't know how he saw me. Um, but he said, if it's your first time, he's like, Hey, if it's your first time, stand up, stand up. And I was like, nah, 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 you know, cause I'd actually been there twice. So technically, right. I'd been there two times. I didn't want to stand up. So he's looking at me. He kept saying it. And I kept saying, no, no, no. He finally gave up. Um, and then I never went back. I moved to Texas actually to get away from that church. Uh, but, uh, I remember one time I was sharing that story here at church and one guy was like, he was itching to get up, right? He wanted to share his name. So I said, Hey, I'll talk to you after service. After service, I see him make a beeline out that side door. I actually tried to talk to him. He just left. He drove away. I guess he didn't like what I had to say after that. But anyway, if you want to, uh, in conclusion, um, if you want to meet me, you can, if you don't want to, it's cool too. I'm over it. Um, I'm good to close in prayer if you guys are. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. We're uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. So if you want to turn there, it's not going to be a very lighthearted sermon. I'm just going to put that out there right now. So I figure we might as well start with a few smiles because we're not going to have any for the next hour. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're calling this series East of Eden. And uh, we called it this because... Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, right? It's a book written by Solomon. We talked about this, or Solomon is the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes. And this book deals honestly with the world as it is. We established that last week. We believe that God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of the entire world, heaven and earth. And when he created it, he designed it to be good. However, that being said, things aren't always so good now. Things are often the opposite of good. We read in the, uh, we read in the beginning of the Bible that God originally placed mankind in paradise in a garden called Eden with no suffering, no exhaustion, no pain of any kind, no death. And yet because of sin, because of our sin, we were cast out to the east of Eden. It's a metaphor that John Steinbeck used for one of his books. It's a metaphor that we're using for our series. East of Eden means our existence in a fallen world post-paradise. Okay, after things fell apart, after the fall of mankind into sin. In this world east of Eden, there is suffering, there is exhaustion, there is pain, there is death. And Ecclesiastes is a book about how to live in this world, in light of the world as it was originally made to be. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 2 through 11, maybe the most famous passage in all of Ecclesiastes. Uh, But I'll start in verse 1 just so you get the context a little bit. So let's read Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 1. I'll pray and then we'll get into it. So let me read. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns." 
All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before your holy word and it's not easy what we're looking at this afternoon. God, we need your help to understand. And even more than that, we need your help, God, to really think about what this means. What are the implications? God, how does this apply to our lives? And it does. God, I think that for all of us, I think the biggest challenge will be at the end of the day, not, not understanding so much as really taking to heart the, the difficult and even, um, shocking message of Ecclesiastes. But God, I pray that at the end of this, as we make our way through this passage, through this book, God, I pray that you would help us to live completely differently because of it. We know that you inspired this book for a reason. You gave it to us for a purpose. And I pray, God, that you would use this book toward that end. God, that we would not live for vain things, but that we would live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever felt like giving up? You know, throwing in the towel or quiet quitting, as some people call it nowadays. Have you ever thought about running away or shutting down or just kind of going into a do this anymore? Life threatens to break every single person, no matter how strong you are, how smart you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are, how popular, how successful, how beautiful. We all have our vulnerabilities Someone might be rich, they might be talented, and yet their marriage is falling apart. And every day feels like suffering. They don't know if they could take another minute being in the house with that person. You might love to run and be outdoors, and you love to just enjoy fresh air. And yet, your chronic pain or, or maybe just age is taking its toll on your body. And you don't know what you're going to do once you're robbed of that ability, that freedom to just go outside and move. Maybe you hate your work, but there's no alternative. You need to pay the bills. You don't really have the education to change careers. Have you ever felt like giving up? Victor was interested in the mind from an early age. He started taking night classes in psychology when he was only in junior high. When he was in high school, just to give a sense of the time, he started corresponding with Sigmund Freud. So this was a while ago. When he graduated high school, he was admitted to the University of Vienna to study medicine and had his first paper published before he turned 20 years old. So Victor, if you looked at his trajectory, was clearly going places. Okay, After he graduated with his MD, he started to develop his own school of psychology, whereas Freud believed that the kind of fundamental driving force behind human beings, kind of our main motivation, the thing that we all want and need was pleasure. And while Adler, the other great psychologists, believe that the thing that we all want and need is, is agency or power, we need control, what 
Victor came to believe was that it was actually meaning and purpose that we need in life. You could take away pleasure. You could take away power. But if you don't have purpose, then you have nothing. What human beings most fundamentally need is to feel that what we do and who we are, it it matters. He called his approach logotherapy. And if you know Greek at all, you know that the word word in Greek is logos, L-O-G-O-S. It means word literally, but it also means principle or meaning. Logotherapy, meaning therapy, word-based therapy. Victor developed this as a young man. He was clearly going places. But then World War II broke out and Victor, he, he was, you know, he went to Vienna for medical school. He was Austrian, but he was also Jewish. In 1942, he was arrested by the Gestapo. His family was imprisoned in one camp where his father died. Uh, His wife was forced to abort their baby. His mother and his brother were killed. Victor was transferred to a different camp. So was his wife. His wife was killed in that camp. These weren't the places Victor ever thought he'd end up. But even though he was there, he didn't give up. Ever the psychologist, he observed what was going on around him. That himself... And he noticed that even in the darkest places human beings could ever go, he noticed that those who made it, after the camps especially, as he reflected, those who made it out of the camp, those who survived, were people who somehow held on to some kind of purpose or meaning. Those who felt they needed to stay alive for someone else in the camp, to take care of them those who constantly dreamt of a life afterwards, the things they were going to do, the places they were going to see, and those who could vividly imagine going home. It was meaning, it was meaning and purpose that kept them from giving up. But we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and right away the preacher confronts us with the question, what if... What if there is no meaning? What does that do to us? How does that affect our psyche if there is no meaning? If the one thing that we need that kind of drives us psychologically, uh, psychologically, that keeps us from succumbing to despair, what if that thing doesn't exist? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He starts off by saying, in this sermon, so to speak, nothing matters. Nothing matters. Pastor, I come to church to get encouraged and built up. And this is what we're going through. This is how Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Bible, this is how it starts. Now, here's what's interesting. There used to be a time when Ecclesiastes was maybe the most or one of the most neglected books uh, in the entire Bible. Churches kind of avoided it. Uh, commentaries weren't really written on it, and, and people didn't want to talk about it. It was too depressing, too dangerous, like I talked about last week. But newer commentaries mentioned this, and I've noticed it myself, that there's kind of a renaissance when it comes to Ecclesiastes, a, a new interest, this eagerness to hear the words of the preacher. I, I was just looking at random stuff, and I saw two churches that I know of that are going through Ecclesiastes right now, verse by verse, besides our own. Ecclesiastes is, for lack of a better word, maybe really hot right now. So why do you think that is? 
I mean, think about it. Why, why Ecclesiastes? There's 66 books of the Bible. A lot of them are maybe more easily applicable. They're, they're easier to, to chew on. Why Ecclesiastes? Well, maybe because right now a lot of people are searching for meaning. I think it's not that hard to find out. I think a lot of people are hoping. They're hoping that there is such a thing as meaning because a lot of people really, I think, are on the verge of giving up. Depression is at a high right now. Anxiety is huge. The opening notes of Ecclesiastes reverberate in tune with how so many in our society are already feeling that nothing really matters or I can't find that thing that matters that gives meaning to my life. You know, it's a common complaint among older generations. I include myself, I guess, that Gen Z, no offense, the Zoomers, are anti-work. And I was reading an article about this, about how they're anti-work, how, quote-unquote, no one wants to work anymore. But the author of this article said there is a common misconception that Gen Zers are anti-work, but in reality, the problem is they are anti-meaningless work. So if Gen, uh, Gen Zers aren't working, it just means that they see so many jobs that are posted as ultimately purposeless, meaningless. What's the point of killing yourself for a job that doesn't pay enough to make up your college debt? Why work your fingers down to the bone for a company that doesn't even provide any tangible value that you believe in yourself? Why commit to a corporation that doesn't even know your name and would replace you in a week if something happened to you? At the bottom of it is a search for meaning. And it's not just Gen Z, okay? Uh, millennials, my generation, we're quickly approaching kind of that midlife crisis age. And I don't know if you've had a friend or maybe an uncle or even your own parents or maybe you who have gone through a midlife crisis before, but it's a real thing. What is the rest of my life going to be about? Is this all there is? I'm running out of time. If I'm going to make a change, I got to make it now. At the bottom of all of that, though, is a search for meaning. And then, of course, some of us are past that already. We're in kind of the twilight years of life. What's on our mind? Legacy. What are you thinking about? It's what you're going to be remembered for. What's going to survive past you? What you can pass on to the next generation? And at the bottom of that, too, is the same thing, a search for meaning. I mean, have you ever struggled with a sort of existential depression? What am I doing with my life? Have you ever experienced a sort of cosmic anxiety, kind of a panic? Like, I don't know what to do. I need to do something. Have you ever felt like giving up? The preacher, though, he wrote thousands of years ago, speaks directly to our cultural milieu. He, he speaks to the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age. It's why everyone's reading Ecclesiastes, because we're looking for something. And the preacher has something to tell us. So let's get into it. We're going to break down our text into three parts as we do. Okay, we're going to look at it under three points. First, the proposition. The proposition. The preacher is making an argument, and this is the preacher's thesis. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times the preacher repeats the same Hebrew word, hevel. If you're taking notes, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. The ESV translation, which I'm reading from, translate, it translates this word as vanity. So it says, hevel, 
Okay, everything is hevel, hevel, hevelim, vanity of vanities, all is hevel. To understand Ecclesiastes, we need to understand this word. This is a key word for this book, but there are layers to it. Okay, so first layer, hevel literally means like a, a, a vapor or, or smoke. Okay, it's a, it's a warm puff of breath. On a cold day. You know what I'm talking about, right? When it's really cold and you breathe out, you can see your, your respiration for a second. What he's saying, or what Hevel is, is vapor or smoke. He's talking about something that's empty, in other words. Okay, maybe you see it, but there's no substance to it. You reach out your hand to grab the smoke, but there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing there. He's talking about something that's transient. Something that doesn't last. Again, when you breathe out on a cold day, you see it for just a moment, and then it disappears. So in context, hevel can mean several things. It's not always used literally. It can refer to things that are deceptive. You see it, and you think that you're going to find something, and then when you get there, it's it's gone. Like a mirage, it can refer to things that are frustrating. You're just trying to get a handle on it, but you can't. It can refer to things that are absurd, things that don't really have meaningful or don't make meaningful sense. Hevel literally means breath or smoke or vapor, but it's not a literal word. It's a metaphor. It's an extremely nuanced idea. It's a diamond with a lot of different facets. And we see this word almost 40 times in the book. It's used in different ways. But Hevel, Hevel is translated most commonly in this book as vanity. Okay, as vanity. So there's another layer to, to this, the second layer. Okay, hevel means vanity. It means literally vapor or something like that. It's translated as vanity. What does that mean? Because vanity is not really a word that I think we use in the same way as the preacher is using it, at least not today. Nowadays, if you say someone is vain, you're talking about how they are consumed maybe with their outward appearance. They're maybe excessively prideful. You're so vain. You might say that to someone who's always looking in the mirror, something like that. You're so vain. But when uh, the Bible was translated into the old King James version, and they used the word vanity in Ecclesiastes, vanity kind of had a different meaning. And, and it still means that, but it's secondary. But back then, what it meant was the quality of being worthless or futile. Futility. Now, uh, we've kept the old King James kind of uh, flavor to Ecclesiastes. That's why it says vanity. Some translations have tried to change it to futile or, or to meaningless. NIV says meaningless, uh, but most stick with vanity. And I think vanity is a good term because what vanity does capture is the superficiality of things, the lack of substance. That's what Hevel is. So what does it mean that the preacher says vanity of vanities? Well, there's another layer here. Why does he keep repeating it? Because in Hebrew, there are no punctuation marks, or there weren't before. So you couldn't just italicize it. You couldn't put it in all caps or anything like that, underline it. If you wanted to emphasize something, you would have to repeat it. So in Hebrew, you see this, right? God is not just holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. The superlative, okay, of holiness. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So it's the kind, of, same kind of thing here. The ultimate, okay, vanity of vanities. There, things are as futile, as transient, as fleeting as they could possibly be. It's the superlative. It's emphasizing the utter emptiness, 
the total futility, the ultimate super, superficiality of basically everything. And maybe you can think about it this way. Okay, my kids, they like to blow bubbles every once in a while. Um, and even my youngest, uh, Levi, he's one. One of his first 10 words is bubble. Okay, so he's kind of learning certain things. Uh, he blows it, and I say this too is vanity to him. Um, but our oldest, Peyton, right, she has gotten pretty good at blowing bubbles. She's very patient with it. And she sometimes blows these humongous bubbles. And the other day, uh, she blew this huge bubble, and then she said, Dad, Dad, right, look at this huge bubble. And I was, I don't know, I don't know what I was doing. I was probably, you know, praying or something. Just kidding. Uh, but I, I was looking on my phone. And I was just looking at something real quick. And I said, hold on one second. She says, no, look right now. So I looked up and it had already popped. So who knows how big it was? She said, dad, check it out. And I didn't see it. Now, my old Hebrew professor from seminary, he actually compared Hevel to soap bubbles. This was the illustration that he used. And the reason why he, he used it to quote him was soap bubbles, they are beautiful, but they're insubstantial. Okay, they're delightful, but they're ephemeral, just like life. And he kind of, he started talking about Ecclesiastes. Okay, so it's not that things are bad, per se. Don't get that impression. It's not that things are evil. It's that things are hevel. See, what the preacher is proposing is life is a soap bubble. You could think of it this way. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, everything is a soap bubble. What he's saying is life is fleeting. Life is short. I shared this before, but Billy Graham, toward the end of his life, and mind you, he lived to, to 99, okay? He lived pretty long. Toward the end of his life, someone asked him, what was the biggest surprise of your life? And his simple answer was the brevity of it. He lived to 99. The surprise of his life was how short life is, but that's how it is. The older you get, and, and for all of us who have lived for a little while, the older we get, the faster time seems to go. I know it's my experience. I've heard someone say every old person feels like a young person who woke up one day in an old person's body. Life is a soap bubble, right? It's, Dad, check this out, and you blink, and you missed it. Life is short. He's also saying that life is slippery. There's a sense in which you can't grasp onto it. I even see this with my kids going back to the soap bubble illustration. They'll blow a bubble and they'll try to catch it. And it's always moving out of the way. They can't quite get their fingers on it. Sometimes it pops. I don't want to push the metaphor too far. But the point is you can't control it. I mean, hevel means vapor or smoke or breath. If you think about trying to grab smoke or trying to shape the smoke to your own liking. It's impossible, no matter how strong you are, how dexterous you are with your hands. We have far less control over our lives than we tend to believe. In fact, I was thinking about just a few years ago, in 2020, I don't know if you were going to church then, but in January 2020, every church took advantage of the greatest pun opportunity of our lifetime, which was 2020 vision. Right, our church is going to have 2020 vision this year. We're going to do all these things. I don't think we did it. Did we do it? I don't remember. Um, we're, we're kind of rebellious like that. But every church was doing it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I wish I thought of it. And then March hit, and something called COVID came around, and the rest is history. Every single church's plans fell apart. In fact, 
things were a lot worse than that. A lot of churches died. A lot of pastors quit. You don't know how things are going to go. I mean, the saying, right, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men, I think 2020 really proved that saying. It's all vanity, says the preacher. It's all hevel. It's short. It's fleeting. Uh, you don't know how it's going to go. You have little control. Now, this is a pretty intense statement if you're actually listening to what he's saying. He's saying everything. He says all. In Hebrew, that word for all means all, right? All things are hevel. I know that if uh, I was talking to you about your plans, right? If you came to talk to me, I, I need some counsel, Pastor. If you, uh, I would probably say talk to James first, but if you t- were talking to me about your plans for life or a career change or what you wanted for your kids or something like that, and I said, you know what? It doesn't even matter. Who cares? And I talked about that last week a little bit. I don't know if you'd agree with me. You might think, okay, well, some things do matter. I know some things are superficial, but other things actually do matter. Can we talk seriously here? He's being dead serious, and he says that everything doesn't really matter if you think about it. Now, some translations go all the way. They say everything is meaningless, like the NIV. I don't know if you have the NIV here. That That's close to it. That's not exactly, that's a little too narrow of a definition of hevel, as we'll see as we get through the book a little bit more. But if you look at verse 3, at least you'll see kind of the direction that the preacher is going in when he says everything is vanity. Verse 2 is the proposition. Verse 3 is the pointed question that sets the stage for how the preacher is going to break down uh, his thesis here, his argument. Verse 3, he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The issue he's thinking about particularly is gain, is profit. And it's a commercial term. Okay, in here, it has to do with, you know, you do business, you have expenses, you take in revenue. At the end, what is your profit? What's the bottom line? What do you get out of it? What's yours to keep? Now, in a metaphorical sense, he's talking about what advantage do you get? But what he's asking is uh, for all the toil, for all the work that we put into life, think about it. What do you actually get back? It's not just about, you know, vocation putting in long hours at the office. It's everything. Everything you try at, everything that takes up your time, your attention, your energy. The question he asks is, what is the actual gain of all of it? What do you get out of all your hard work, your effort, your planning, your stress, your striving? I mean, think about, okay, think about it like this. What's the last thing that really stressed you out? It might be hard to think of, but just try to think a little bit. What's the last thing where, you know, you lost some sleep or maybe you got into a fight with your spouse or maybe you told your kids, not right now. I got something important going on, right? Uh, you, you shooed them away because I got this thing, this important thing. What was that thing? That thing that really just put that knot in your stomach. You might not even remember it right away. A lot of times we stress so much one week later, we're not even thinking about it anymore because it's been solved. The preacher is saying, stretch that out over your entire life. What are these things that you're stressing about? What are these things that are causing you to have sleepless nights? At the end of it all, is there ever going to be, is there any purpose to these things? Is there any gain, any profit? All the stuff we care about, how much will it matter in 50 years or 500 years or 5,000 years? I mean, how many of you, just to make it a little bit more personal, how many of you know what your great-grandparents did for work? 
I mean, how many of us even know our great-grandparents' names? Full names, middle name included. So what makes us think that everything we're into, everything we care about, everything that gets us up in the morning, what makes us think that these things, at the end of the day, matter at all? I mean, by the time our great-grandkids are adults and they're worried about their own lives, they might not even know our names. The preacher hits the ground sprinting toward a full existential crisis. And maybe you're thinking, Pastor, okay, first of all, how dare you? And second of all, how does this help? How does this help? Why is this even in the Bible? How does this sermon help us? Why are we even talking about this? I don't even like to think about these things. The other day, a song was playing in our house. It's from a musical, but it was covered by none other than Kelly Clarkson, right? Our first American idol. So our kids were asking, okay, who is this singing? They're pretty good at singing. And I said, well, this is Kelly Clarkson, the first American idol. And they said, what are you as a pastor doing introducing idolatry into our house? And I had to think about it. I I just turned off that Kelly Clarkson right away, uh, threw away my Justin Guarini CD. No, I tried to explain to them what American Idol was. I I had to talk about Simon Cowell. I had to talk about reality TV, all these different things. And it all reminded me of that first season of American Idol. Now, some of you saw it. You don't have to raise your hand. But if you didn't, you remember kind of the the thing that was happening. I remember seeing the commercials. I had never seen anything like it because they were showing these people auditioning for a singing competition. And before then, okay, people who auditioned were at least decent, right? They were trying to go from decent to great or good to blowing up, right, on the radio. But they were showing these people auditioning and they were like the worst singers you ever saw in your life. And after the audition, some British guy was saying, wow, that was awful. I've never been envious of the dead before. I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. I got to watch this. Normally, they vet everyone and only let in the good people. But on this show, they vetted everyone, only let in the good people and the worst. And either you go to Hollywood or Simon Cowell would eviscerate you in front of the entire country. And it wasn't just that they were terrible or that the judges were harsh that left an impression on me. What left an impression on me was they were terrible and they were let in. They were terrible, and they thought they were good. They were terrible, and for some reason, everyone in their lives, their friends and their family, had lied to them and sent them to their doom. It was messed up. I mean, it was messed up that Simon Cowell said those things, but what was even more messed up is that no one told them not to do this. I mean, they had been tricked into being humiliated on national television. I mean, if only someone told them before. The preacher, okay, he wants to tell us the hard truth. Bless you. He wants to tell us the truth before it's too late. Before we get to the end of our lives, and you look back at the soap bubble of all your accomplishments and dreams and effort, and you see it burst right in front of you. Before, you know, you get laid off at that job that you slaved away for for 30 years and they just kick you out the door. Before your marriage falls apart and you have put all your eggs in that basket. Before you just look back on the things that you've accomplished and you realize there's nothing really that you've done. The truth hurts, but in the end, believing a lie is a million times worse. So what is the truth of Ecclesiastes? 
that everything in life under the sun is hevel. Everything in life under the sun is vanity. So much of what we labor for. And just think about it, to be liked, to be remembered, to make a difference, to grow personally, to be successful, to be healthy, to have a nice house, even to live a long life and be healthy. There's zero profit to be found in these things, not in the long run, at least, not in the big picture. Zero profit. So stop searching where meaning cannot be found. And that's what he gets to next in the second point. He wants us to rethink our lives in light of objective reality, as harsh as it is, that everything is hevel. Now he wants us to, to just look around. And this is the second point, the proof, the proof. He doesn't just say, take my word for it. He says, just open your eyes and see what I see. Verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. We just talked about this briefly, how quickly generations passed, right? You, you quickly become old. You forget your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. I remember the first time I felt old. And I know some of you are shaking your heads. You're like, what do you mean? feeling old. Some of you are like, yeah, you've been old as long as I've known you. But the first time I really felt it, I was 30. Okay. Maybe I was 31. I forget. Um, I, I spoke, I was able to, to preach at this youth retreat in Austin. Um, so the youth were, I don't know, like 11 through 18, something like that. So I went to preach there and we had just started Zoe. I had just become kind of like a quote unquote real pastor. I was used to people saying, wow, you're pretty young to be a pastor. And you know, it felt good, right? It felt good. Um, but I went to this youth retreat. I spoke the first message. And then one of the older leaders came to talk to me. He was older than me, probably at least in his 40s. And he said, hey, um, how old are you? And I, I, was, I said 30 or 31. And I thought he was going to say, wow, you're pretty young to be like a, a real life pastor, right? But he said, oh, yeah, I thought so. Definitely in your 30s. I could tell by the way you talk, you're completely out of touch with the youth of today. And then he walked away. He just walked away. I had to preach like five more messages after that. And if you know how old I am, if you do the math, that was a while ago. Okay, so I've only gotten older since then. A lot of those youth that I spoke to are adults now. But this is how it always is. You're young until you're not anymore. Generations come and they go and the earth remains forever. Now, this is not a geology statement. It's not a, a, a theoretical treatise on, you know, the eternality of the earth or the universe, anything like that. He's making a philosophical point. What he's saying is that the world is a stage. Uh, the scenes change, the costumes change, the characters change, but the same story, the same scene just keeps going on. Same stage keeps going on forever. The play goes on. So you compare it to the earth. Our lives are just a flash in the pan. The preacher wants us to think outside of ourselves. He wants us to step out of our kind of petty concerns about life, the things we're going to cook for dinner tonight, the things we've got to shop for, what we're doing tomorrow, what's on the calendar. He wants us to take a step back and recognize just how insignificant and small these things are compared to even just the planet that we're walking on. This in of itself should be humbling uh, but the preacher now takes aim at the arrogance we so often display in our self-importance because he goes on talking about creation, but his point is to point out the futility of everything else happening around us. So not only are we, maybe that was kind of a mouthful, not only are we living insignificant lives compared to creation, but even creation is caught in a loop of vanity. 
The sun rises, verse 5, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Now, he's kind of inverting our expectations here because usually the sunrise is a symbol of hope. Right? It's always darkest before dawn or tomorrow will be a new day. He's looking at something that we look to positively and he's twisting it into something that is very bleak and negative. He's not really twisting it. He's just helping us to see it in its context. He says, look at the cycle. It's sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. He wants us to keep looking at this circle spinning on and on until we get nauseated, until we get dizzy, until we want to throw up just looking at it. He doesn't view the sunrise as inspiring, He views it as something that just shows how endlessly futile things are. The word for hastens here has to do with a sort of exhaustion. The picture is of the sun shuffling back, weary to to rise up again. The sun itself is exhausted and tired. So, so exhausted by the tedium of doing the same thing forever. Verse six, the wind blows to the south, goes to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. Now, Again, this isn't science. I don't even really know how the wind patterns go. This is poetry. This is metaphor. The point is that the wind, it doesn't go anywhere. See what I'm saying? The point, the the wind is like a person who is always busy, but never getting anything done. The wind just blows around and around, going north, going south, coming back around. It's always moving, but it never arrives anywhere. There is no destination. There is no end point. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Okay, now, Ecclesiastes, the whole book is going to be like this. Ecclesiastes is one of the most beautiful books, but it's also, I think, by far the bleakest book. There's truly nothing like it, even in the scriptures. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. There seems to be a purpose. There seems to be an end. There's a destination for the waters. They go out to the sea. It's beautiful. And yet the ocean, if you think about it, it never fills up. There's no real purpose to anything. There is a water cycle of rain and evaporation, and it just keeps going on and on and on. If you want proof, the preacher is saying, if you want proof that everything is vanity, that everything is hevel, that things aren't really that important, just look at literally everything in creation. We talk about going out into nature, right? And being inspired by it. He's saying, go out into nature and despair. Life east of Eden is stuck in an endless loop. Nothing done leads to any permanent change. So what makes you think that any of your effort in life, any of your, any of your toil to build your sandcastle lives will lead to anything permanent? The ways you're just going to wash it away. The lost your way the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Imagine if we just closed in prayer right here for real. I mean, it just gets bleaker and bleaker. But he's making a point. You know, Leo, Leo Tolstoy, I don't know if you ever read his books. You've probably heard of them like War and Peace or Anna Karenina. Some of the greatest works of literature ever produced by human beings He wrote that despite his accomplishments, in spite of his quote-unquote greatness, he felt empty. This is what he said in one of his books called A Confession. He said, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? 
What will come of my whole life? What's the point of what I'm doing? I'm slaving away. I'm trying to be great. I'm trying to produce this art. But what's the point? This is what drove him to the verge of suicide. You know, the sun also rises. It says so right there. That was the name of Ernest Hemingway's first book. That book is about kind of the hopelessness and the lostness that the generation after World War I felt because it was the worst war they had ever seen. The war to end all wars. Yeah, right. World War II was just on the horizon. They had a great depression. All these things happened. They felt like life was meaningless. And if you know Hemingway's story, his story is super sad too. Just like Tolstoy, he saw these things clearly. He looked around and it felt pointless. The only thing keeping him going was kind of his crazy lifestyle. He was a big game hunter. He traveled a lot. He wrote every day. He was famous. He drank a lot. Toward the end of his life, those things got taken away, right? His health was bad. He couldn't travel. He couldn't hunt anymore. His health got to the point where he couldn't write anymore. And when that happened, he committed suicide. See, the people who see the most clearly have seen what the preacher is bringing up right now. You don't have to be the wisest man who ever lived just to open your eyes, look around, and see that maybe there is no point to any of this. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? This is disturbing, okay, on many levels. But I think the most disturbing thing is that it's actually in the Bible. Because if you've read the Bible, and we've been, you know, going through different books of the Bible over the years, most of the books of the Bible aren't really like this. Okay, they don't take this, this track. And some of us are surely wondering, how does God fit in to what the preacher is saying? Like, how, how does religion, how, how does Christianity fit in with what the preacher is saying? Commentators over the centuries have debated over this. How does the existence and reality of an almighty God, how does that affect this, uh, this bleak outlook on life? Could the preacher be someone who doesn't believe in God? Is that the point? But if that's the case, why would this be in the Bible? And we've already talked about this. We've established that the preacher is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the great king. He clearly knew who God was, even if maybe he was kind of struggling in different ways. God gave him wisdom. So how did it all lead here? And if you know the story of Solomon, maybe you're thinking maybe it's, it's the words of someone who's jaded, who's fallen away from God. I don't think so either. In fact, I think Ecclesiastes is his repentance book. And I have... Uh, something in Second Chronicles, I'll show you guys later, maybe if we get around to it. I think Solomon did come back to God later in life. So this is even weirder, right? Why would someone who knows who God is write something like this? At least say the Sunday school answer, right? Just say, and meaning is found in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. What are we supposed to do? Take this at face value, find a hidden message, take a sharp right, and just pivot toward Jesus in a panic? It's so hopeless. Where is God? Well, we will get to God a little later in this book. It's not like God doesn't exist in this book. But right now, we have to appreciate the case that the the preacher is making. He's offering his proposition. He's building his proofs. He says, before we try to run away from the harsh reality of life, we need to look at it. And we need to look at our lives in light of the harsh reality of life. The universe continues. Time marches on. And the things that we put so much stock into, they might not really matter in the big scheme of things. We need to despair of the futility of finding meaning in creation. And the reason why he pushes us here is so that we can look elsewhere. But the problem is, most people, maybe most of us, never get to this point. 
Uh, it's too painful to be this honest. It's too existentially disturbing to take value of my life and realize that so much of it doesn't mean anything. So what we do is we choose ignorance instead. Many people, they've read Ecclesiastes and their Bible in a year plan, and they said, oh, that was nice, next chapter, just keep moving on. Because ignorance is bliss. I won't think about this right now. I have things to do. I'll focus on my schedule right now, my week, the things I need to buy, put my head down. I'm not saying, and the preacher isn't saying, don't worry about your life. In fact, as we get into Ecclesiastes more, we'll see that's far from what he's saying. However, what the preacher wants us to do in the very beginning of this book is to actually stop and think about our lives. To really consider our lives, our priorities. If you want to live a life of meaning, then you have to consider everything that is meaningless. But some of us choose ignorance. Others of us, we choose pleasure. We've given up on meaning. You know, uh, we'll talk about this more in chapter two, but so many people nowadays are addicted to things that feel good. It's not about finding deep meaning or purpose anymore. It's just about how can I feel good enough to get through the day? We're the most addicted human beings that have ever walked the face of this planet, playing games, binging shows, eating fast food that's designed to be accessible and taste good. Not to mention all the addictions that are clearly not good, like pornography or gambling or other substances, alcohol. It's all more accessible than ever and more abused than it ever has been. Someone said when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. Do you know who said that? It was Viktor Frankl, the guy I was talking about in the beginning. Some of us choose pleasure. We don't know why we're living, but I'm just going to watch another show. Netflix says, are you still watching? That's the most we want to think about deep questions in life. And then some of us simply choose wrongly. We choose something to pour ourselves into. And this is exactly what the preacher wants to disabuse us of. Nietzsche, the philosopher, once said, God is dead. Have you ever heard that before? A lot of Christians are very disturbed by that, obviously, for many reasons. But what he meant by that, from what I understand, isn't that, you know, you can kill God in some way. What he meant was... The concept of God is dead, practically speaking, that people just don't believe in God anymore. God might as well be dead because people don't care about God. But what he saw was that that was a problem because if people don't believe about believe in God, if they don't believe in something higher, then where are they going to tap into meaning and purpose for the long term? And he had an alternative. He said, create your own meaning. Create your own purpose. This is your duty. There is no meaning, so you have to make it yourself. You can see the echoes of this thought all over the world today. You might even see it in yourself. See, you're thinking about your life and you're like, well, I've decided that this is the thing that I'll give myself to. Some of us were all about success. Some of us were all about friendships and popularity. Some of us were all about creating a certain kind of home environment. Some of us were obsessed with our kids' achievements, especially in school and sports. Some of us, we need to be needed We need people to depend upon us. We're always trying to kind of get people to count on us or else we don't know who we are. And these things aren't all bad. Hey, your kids are not bad, but can they sustain the weight of your life? The preacher would say, I don't think so. And this leads to the third point, the problem. Everything is hevel. The problem, everything is hevel. Creation itself proves this. So what's the problem? Look at verse eight. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What's the problem? 
The problem isn't just that things are meaningless or seem to be vain and hevel and fleeting. The problem isn't just that nature is this way. The problem is that things are this way and that we wish they weren't. The problem is we care. Things are tiresome for us. Things aren't satisfying for us. The eye is designed to see, and yet no amount of seeing is enough. The ear is designed to hear, but no amount of hearing is enough. If we were simply rocks, then we would just uh, allow the universe to spin on without us, but we're not rocks. We consider these questions. We need and crave meaning and purpose, and it bothers us when we run up against the wall. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. This is repeating what happened earlier, but making it more personal. Whatever we try to do, it's happened in the past. And maybe you think, okay, wait a minute. There are some new things. iPhone 15 is coming out. Is it really that different than the iPhone 14? Not really. But even if you think a little bit bigger, right? There are smartphones now. They didn't used to exist. Is communication new? Is entertainment new? Is learning new? Maybe we have cars and back then they didn't have cars. Transportation is not a new thing. We're not going to a different planet. Even if, even if we did, it would be just another planet. Everything we've uh, created, so to speak, is just a rehash of what has already been. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. See, everything, even progress is hevel. The medium might be updated, but the substance is the same. It's the same. The eye, it can see in 4K, or it could see in super pixelated screens from the past. Maybe the eye is watching Shakespeare's plays, or just looking at the daily sunrise and sunset 4,000 years ago. It's all the same stuff. Still just as unsatisfying. And here's the thing, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. See, at the end of the day, the issue is significance. You can, you know, spend your life on all these different things. You might even enjoy it to a certain extent. It might feel good. But at the end of the day, it's just not significant. It doesn't matter. There is no remembrance. You know, I, I was reading a commentator, and he said that this was really personal for him because he, in high school, was a star basketball player. And uh, that was his thing. That was his identity in school, right? Everyone knew him for being really good at basketball, right? That's what he cared about. And his school had an alumni basketball game, like maybe 15 years after he graduated. So he's a little older, not in his prime anymore, but he's still good. He goes back, and this was his thing, right? He's so excited. He goes back to school, and, like, no one knows who he is or cares. Everyone else there is a former, like, good basketball player, too. They're older than him. No one knows who they are. He doesn't know who they are. They don't know him. And he really felt kind of this innate, like, this inner, like, desire. He was, like, torn up about it, and he felt like, I got to show people who I am. So he went to go look at the, the records on the wall, and he knew that he was up there. And he looked up there, and every single one of his records had been broken. He had been replaced by other people. So he played in the game. He was all mad. No one cared about who he was. Then he said, even worse, his high school closed down a few years later and got demolished. So his whole high school identity has been wiped off the face of the earth. Now, the problem there, this happens all the time, but the problem there, as the commentator pointed out, is that he cared so much. And Ecclesiastes is going to get to this. Eternity has been written in our hearts. 
As human beings, we're, we're made, we were created for meaning and for purpose. Viktor Frankl wasn't totally wrong. We need meaning and purpose to survive. So you can see where the problem is. The problem is we need it, and yet we can't find it. We need it to live, and yet life itself is vanity. So where should we look? Well, if you can't look in the creation, or if you look in the creation and it can't be found there, excuse me, where do you think we should look? Go to Ecclesiastes 12. I don't want to spoil too much of this book, but I think it's important. Look at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 12. After he causes us to despair of our insignificant, meaningless lives, this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, the last chapter. He says, remember also your what? Your creator. Your creator. There is vanity in creation. The entire thing is caught in an endless loop of futility. So you need to look outside the creation to the creator. You got to look to the creator. Now go with me to John chapter one, John one. We have to sit with the purpose, purposelessness of life. We need to despair over the things that we pour ourselves into too easily, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't have any say at all. Look at John one. See, if you're a Hebrew person and you're reading Ecclesiastes already, you're starting to feel some Something is off here because the Hebrew people, unlike most ancient cultures, did not believe that history was cyclical. They didn't think that things were purposeless, that there was no beginning, no end. They believed that God was the beginning and the end, that there was a definite creation point, that there was a purpose for everything and that everything was going the way that God had laid it out. So to read this and to look around at how the the preacher is viewing things was very disconcerting for the Hebrew mind. And then even other people in history, like the Greeks, they love philosophy. They love mathematics. They felt like there was some kind of order to the universe. And what they called this was the logos, the word. There was some kind of principle. They didn't really get what it was. They looked at their gods. They had their own philosophies, but they didn't quite put their finger on it. They just knew that there was something that seemed like there was some purpose in life. Now, tie those two things together. John 1, what does it say? It says, in the beginning was the word. In Greek, that's logos. Logotherapy, logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the creator. Everything was made through him. He himself is meaning. He himself is purpose. And he created us to have a purpose. He placed, he is the one who placed eternity in our hearts, but we rebelled against him. And now we live east of Eden, separated from God, separated from the one who gave us purpose and can give us purpose. So what does John 1.14 say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us east of Eden. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Something new happened in history. Something broke that cycle of utility. God himself, the creator, stepped down into his own creation. He took on the hevel of life. He suffered. He died on a cross also that we 
could be forgiven and justified. We talk about this every week, but also freed for a different kind of life, a new life, an eternal life. And John says, we have seen his glory. Now, one more Hebrew lesson. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod, okay? K-A-V-O-D, kavod. And when you think about glory, it's kind of an abstract thing, right? But the word kavod, it, it kind of literally means heavy or weighty, okay? Something that's heavy or weighty. I, I, that's not normally what I think of when I think about glory. But what they mean by this is something that has substance to it, something that matters, it's the opposite of Hevel. Hevel is a soap bubble that pops. It might be beautiful, but there's no substance. Kavod is something that is beautiful, that lasts, that has meaning, that will never go away. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, one last place, and then we'll close. 2 Corinthians 4. It's a famous chapter. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 that we are jars of clay, we're jars of clay. We're disposable, in other words. But then he says this in verse 16. He says, and these are words for people who might be tempted to despair. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're hevel, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, what the preacher wants us to get to is the point where we see that everything that you can look at is hevel, so that you could ultimately search in the things that you can't look at. Everything is vanity, so we need to look. Everything seen is vanity, so we need to look to what is unseen. Everything is vain because everything is temporary, so we need to look to what is eternal. Everything in creation is vanity, so we need to look to the creator. We'll close here. I, I asked in the beginning, have you ever felt like giving up? You know, and you think about what Viktor Frankl went through. I think most of us would probably feel like everything we live for has been taken away. What's the point of living? My family's gone. My work is gone. My career has been ruined. I'm probably going to die. But he said that in, in the camps, the people who could somehow hold on to a meaning or a higher purpose were able to survive. And he chronicled this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. But there's something else he said. You can't just tie it up into a super nice and neat bow at the end. He said, these people, okay, they held on to their, their meaning, they survived, but then he wrote about what happened after they survived. He said people, they had held on to this hope that they would go back home, right? They would be received back by neighbors, they could sleep in their own bed, whatever it might be, only to find that their home was blown up and destroyed. He said the hardest thing for every single person was holding on to that hope, that meaning, that purpose, and then after the war, realizing that it wasn't actually substantial at all. Frankel wasn't wrong. We do need purpose. We do need meaning. It's part of what it means to be a human being. But we can't find that in this world, in this vain world east of Eden. 
Home wasn't what, home wasn't what they thought. And that's really it because in this world, we're never going to find a home. We're all sojourners in this creation that has been subjected to futility. So as the preacher shows us all the dead ends, as we step into this book, let's realize that the dead ends are supposed to point us in a different direction. And Jesus says that he has gone ahead in that direction to prepare a place for us, a home. See, it's when you despair of meaning in this life that you can finally find what true meaning is. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time. God, this word in Ecclesiastes is not easy for us to take, God, but we know that this, this painful truth is good for us because it'll point us to Christ. This painful truth will point us to where true meaning and purpose can be found. God, we know that this world, God, can't sustain the weight that we place upon it. It can't sustain the weight of our lives, our very existence. So God, I pray that you would help us to build on the foundation of Christ. And I pray for everyone here too, God. I pray that as we think about these things, that we would see the life even though it's hevel in many ways, is a gift. And when we don't look to it for meaning, we can receive it as such. God, we can enjoy life, God, and we could live for you and we could eat and drink to your glory. So God, I pray that you would help us to tie these threads together for our understanding, for our living, ultimately, that we might live for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.